Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. Hello, everyone. My name is Warren Kinghorn. I'm uh, the co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative, and we're so happy that all of you are here with us for our TMC seminar. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Sarah Jean Barton, one of our colleagues today, who's going to be giving our seminar presentation today. Uh, Dr. Barton is Assistant Professor of Occupational Therapy and Theological Ethics at Duke University Medical Center and Duke Divinity School. She is duly appointed in the uh, in the Occupational Therapy Doctorate Program of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Duke University School of Medicine, as well as at Duke Divinity School, where she is a core faculty member of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative. Dr. Barton's research uh, spans theology, disability, bioethics, and liturgy, uh, and she's especially focused on the role and significance of baptism in the lives of persons with and without intellectual and physical disability. Uh, she uh, did her undergraduate training at Seattle Pacific University, her occupational therapy training at Boston University, and has a Master of Theological Studies and Doctor of Theology from Duke Divinity School. Uh, after spending a couple of years at Western Theological Seminary, she's now uh, on our faculty at Duke in, at Duke, uh, in her current role, and we're delighted uh, that she has joined the Duke faculty this year. Uh, we're excited that you're here with us, Sarah, and look forward to hearing your presentation spirituality and disability in patient care, where we are now and hopes for the future. Thank you so much, Warren, for that kind introduction. It's really good to be with all of you. It's wonderful to see old colleagues and former students and new friends and current colleagues as well. So thank you for being here today. I wanna start out our time together today with sharing some poetry together. So in an excerpt from disability, disability advocate Maria R. Palacios's 2017 poem entitled Naming Ableism, she writes, ableism is when you try to heal me and fix me and promise me that I will walk or see or hear or that I will be everything I was really meant to be one day in heaven. Ableism is believing that heaven is an able-bodied place where broken bodies finally become whole. Ableism is when you say that if God hasn't healed me, it is only because I don't have enough faith. Ableism is how your faith considers me a punishment from God or how you try to pray my differences away as if they were demons. For Palacios, ableism or disability prejudice finds many of its roots in religious assumptions about bodies, impairment, and healing. Often these assumptions rest at the heart of our clinical work, filling our imaginations with how we ought to respond to patients with disabilities 
attend to their spiritual needs in healthcare contexts, and offer care that respects both our patients' spiritual and disability identities. Unfortunately for us, the intersections and interconnections between healthcare, disability, and spirituality are somewhat under-investigated in the current body of literature. Locating scholarship related to disability as it concerns spirituality and patient care yields a small amount of somewhat specialized evidence. For example, in a literature review on the topic, we would find a few historical reflections on how clinicians have responded to bodily limitation throughout the history of medicine and how these responses were often influenced by religious law, duty, or belief. And this historical perspective may influence our considerations for contemporary clinical practice with disabled patients. The second area of limited scholarship that considers disability, spirituality, and patient care evaluates clinical outcomes for people with chronic conditions and diagnoses typically associated with disability, for example, Parkinson's disease. These few studies demonstrate the promise of religious practices, both for patient coping, as well as overall improved health outcomes within these specific diagnostic categories. And finally, most of the research that considers the intersections of disability, spirituality, and medicine comes from theologians and philosophers and some social scientific researchers. These scholars commonly contribute to journals such as Disability in Society, the Journal of Disability and Religion, and the Open Access Journal, Disability Studies Quarterly. Conspicuously missing from this list are journals of medicine, as well as contributions on this topic by clinicians themselves. So one goal of my talk today is to raise awareness to this lack of reflection on disability as it relates to spirituality and patient care, and to encourage each of you to consider this as an area of future research in your own practice and scholarship. To raise this awareness, I want to invite us to take a closer look at our own latent assumptions about what disability is, especially as these assumptions relate to our practices of care. In addition to surveying how our imaginations respond to disability and people with disabilities, especially in relationship to spirituality in the context of medicine, I also want us to hear from the perspectives of disabled people, as we did at the beginning of today's talk with the poetic words of Maria Palacios. It's my hope that in engaging with the perspectives of people with disabilities, we might be renewed in both our imaginations and practices as clinicians, trainees, researchers, educators, and people of faith. In order to press toward this renewal of practice and imagination with regard to disability, I'm gonna provide us with a brief roadmap of where we're going today. First, we'll ask the question, what are we even talking about here? In this first section, I'll provide us with some shared vocabulary and frameworks related to disability. Second, we'll ask the question, where are we now with regard to the nexus of disability and spirituality and patient care? In this part of the talk, 
we'll visit three common tropes about people with disabilities as they relate to spirituality and religion in the sphere of clinical practice. And finally, we'll ask a third question, that is, where are we going? Drawing upon insights from people in the disability community, the conclusion of today's talk will focus on how we might imagine new kinds of futures at the intersections of disability and spirituality within our communities of clinical practice, research, faith, training, and formation. So part one, what are we talking about here? Frameworks for disability. The opening excerpts I shared today came from Maria Palacios' poem entitled Naming Ableism. The concept of ableism emerged from the disability rights movement in the United States as a way to talk about disability prejudice in a parallel manner to critical discourses in sexism and racism. Disability studies scholar Michelle Nario Redmond defines ableism as, quote, prejudice and discrimination toward individuals simply because they are classified as disabled, regardless of whether their impairments are physical or mental, visible or invisible, end quote. Bernario Redmond, the prejudice and discrimination of ableism arise in attitudes, behaviors or practices in response to disability, and finally, negative cognitive beliefs about people with disabilities. Definitions of ableism have largely developed out of the interdisciplinary field of disability studies. Disability studies merges activism and scholarship, primarily driven by disabled people, but also including the work of non-disabled allies. The field seeks to support the flourishing of disabled people and create critical discourse on disability and conceptual concerns related to the lives of people with disabilities, such as consent, agency, interdependence, healthcare decision-making, and ethics of care. But before we go any further, what do we mean and what do disability studies scholars mean and what do I mean when I talk about this thing called disability? I'll offer us three prominent frameworks for thinking about the construct of disability today, inviting us into some curiosity around these frameworks for disability, especially those that may be less familiar in our own assumptions and experiences. For the vast majority of scholars in disability studies and people who are a part of the broader disability community, Conceptions of disability will blend the three frameworks that we will briefly explore now. The first framework for disability is a medical narration. The medical model of disability envisions disability as an intrinsic, individualized, and inherently negative problem. Disability exists in the body of the person who is disabled, and therefore, it's most properly responded to with some kind of medicalized or therapeutic fix. For example, surgery, rehabilitation, institutionalization, and or medication. In this medical framework for disability, disability is envisioned as something that should always be addressed, remediated, fixed, or healed, at least to the extent possible within medical interventions. As you might know, communities of disabled people, particularly people with physical and psychiatric disabilities, tend to reject a prioritization of a medical framework for disability, claiming that disability is not an inherently individualized phenomena, 
and that negative assumptions around disability ought to be questioned, if not completely rejected. In response to their dissatisfaction with the medical model of disability, the social framework for disability arose with support from both disability rights activists and scholars. In this second framework, the social model of disability, inherently negative and individualized impairments no longer disable people. Rather, the contexts, environments, and societies which disabled people inhabit serve as the primary factors that impair individuals with significant forms of human limitation. To give a very simple example, if a particular society or community decided to eliminate stairs and escalators and instead build ramps and elevators for navigation in all public and private spaces, people using wheelchairs might no longer be considered so disabled. Their environment and social context, one without any stairs or escalators, would perhaps even advantage wheelchair users who could quickly navigate up and down ramps which, with much more agility and speed than uh, us schmucks who could only use our legs to get them from place to place. In the social model of disability, disabled people challenge communally understood visions of what constitutes a normative body or normative mind. They do this through reading with braille, communicating without the use of spoken language or navigating their world on wheels. The social model of disability posits that the current constructions of our societies heavily discriminate against disabled people. And these societal and environmental barriers to access and participation are what disables people, not bodily differences or limits. In this social model, disability loses much of its negative connotation. And the impetus falls not upon individuals with particular impairments and limitations, but upon societies and systems as a whole to advocate for and take action steps toward making systemic changes for access. The third and final framework for disability that I'll raise for our consideration today is the minority model. In this minority framework, disability is primarily understood as a minoritized identity. The widely heterogeneous group of people with disabilities, whether their disabilities are intellectual, learning, psychiatric, physical, and or sensory, share a minority identity by virtue of the shared discrimination, disadvantages, and prejudices they face in society. This uniting factor of discrimination establishes a basis for solidarity of identity across very diverse groups of disabled people. Before we explore existing narratives about disability at the crux of spirituality and patient care, I wanna offer one final note on language use and disability. For nearly the last three decades, person-first language, for example, saying a person with a disability, has been the universal standard for academic, professional, and other public speech and writing on disability. However, an increased turn toward identity-first language for example, saying a disabled person or an autistic person has surfaced in the past five to 10 years. 
So while most professional and medically based organizations still call for the exclusive use of person-first language, many people in the disability community have pressed for a shift toward identity-first language, even in academic talks and publications. You may have already noticed that I alternate between multiple types of language to describe disability identity. The shifting between identity first and person first language seeks to honor my multiple commitments to the disability community, my professional clinical and research roles, and my own experience as a person who lives with a chronic and intermittently disabling health condition. My academic collaborators and research participants with disabilities have expressed a very wide variety of preferred kinds of language use around disability, some simply preferring to be called by their first name. So in this talk, I attempt to honor the varying perspectives on disability language use, inviting us to remain sensitive to both patient preferences and changing best practices in communication on the topic of disability. So part two, where are we now? Existing narratives of disability and spirituality in patient care. Now with these frameworks of disability shared between us, I want us to next consider prominent tropes about disability and spirituality that directly impact how many of us imagine disability and take care of our patients with disabilities. In this section, I want us to again do some critical reflection on our own assumptions about disabled people with regard to their spirituality and their religious practices, how their practices might influence their participation in systems of healthcare, and finally, consider how our own assumptions about disability might influence our practices of care for our patients. To engage in this critical reflection, I'll draw our attention to three common assumptions about disability and spirituality. Considering our own assumptions regarding the connections between spirituality and disability has the potential to help us with reinterpreting disability to the benefit of the patients we care for. Today, I hope we'll stretch our imaginations with regard to disability and spirituality, first by unpacking some common narratives and then imagining together how we might transform our assumptions, embrace new interventions, and advocate for change. Assumptions about disability and spirituality often come into sharp relief in the context of medical decision-making at junctures across the lifespan. Think about, for example, the neonatal intensive care unit. How do our assumptions about disability and disabled life inform recommendations for the resuscitation of neonates with severe HIE, lysencephaly, trisomy 18, and other diagnoses that indicate a lifetime of profound disability? How might we respond in the context of rehabilitation when adolescent and adult patients need to make focused decisions around mobility, often with a wheelchair, as well as bowel and bladder management programs? Or at the end of life, how do we attend to the spiritual needs of older adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, especially as conversations about palliative care or hospice become relevant to their life situations? I wanna to suggest today that clinicians often turn to three common tropes about disability and spirituality when interacting with these kinds of patients. 
These three tropes include first, a focus on healing or cure. Second, a focus on innocence and inspiration. And third, a focus on an assumed non-spirituality among patients with disabilities. In another excerpt from Palacios's poem, she writes, ableism is believing I need to be fixed. Ableism is you refusing to fix what's really broken. In this first common trope about people with disabilities in relationship to spirituality, it is assumed that disabled people always desire to be healed, cured, or fixed. As we saw in the medical framework of defining disability, we see again a very specific categorization of disability in this assumption of the need for healing. Disability is undesirable and people with disabilities want parts or all of their disability to be remediated. This assumption about a universally desired trajectory of healing for people with disabilities is deeply rooted in religious tropes that suggest some kind of connection between sin and disability. In these religious models of causality, disability, illness, and other kinds of malady are brought upon an individual as a punishment for past wrongdoing or generational sin. These tropes are commonly found in the Hebrew Bible and also used as an interpretive lens for Christian sacred writings. Though notably in Christian scripture, Jesus of Nazareth negates the source of blindness as family or individual sin. Nevertheless, this common religious connection between disability and wrongdoing suggests that God or other divine beings desire normative bodies and minds. It is not the will of the divine for people to live with bodies or minds marked by significant limitations that we call disability. Therefore, accessing healthcare with the goal to remediate or eliminate disability can become a spiritually charged mission. This common narrative that all disabled people desire healing, or in other words, that being fixed with regard to their disability is a primary spiritual need, is present among people from a variety of religious traditions who encounter people with disabilities both within and outside the realm of medicine. In two popular articles from the past year, Damon Rose's BBC News article entitled, Stop Trying to Heal Me, and Chandler Williams' essay in Relevant Magazine titled, I Have a Disability, This is What You Should Know When You Pray For Me. The two authors discuss their common experience of being prayed for in public by random strangers, often from Christian religious traditions, because they have a perceptible disability. Williams, who reads Braille and has a significant visual impairment, writes this about the assumptions of those who offer prayers for her healing. Quote, the assumption seems to be that my blindness is my biggest struggle and trust me, it's not, end quote. In the context of patient care, a sole focus on healing often challenges a sense of pride and disability identity held by many disabled patients. As we saw the social model of disability suggest, an assumption of desired healing is a spiritual need among all patients with disabilities, particularly lifelong or congenital impairments 
can unhelpfully mischaracterize their disability experience in sense of identity. As Palacios challenges us in her poem, perhaps our scope of clinical intervention is too narrow. Palacios suggests that clinicians often refuse to fix what's really broken. Systems of discrimination and oppression, including many systemic aspects of healthcare. This is not to say that disabled patients do not need any individualized or client-centered healthcare interventions. For example, people who live with disabilities that involve an experience of chronic pain often appreciate expert medical treatment to address this area of their embodied experience. But for those of us who are clinicians and providers of all kinds, responding to the spiritual needs of disabled people ought to look beyond merely an individualized remediation of the effects of their particular limitations and include interventions such as advocating for the dismantling of systemic disability stigma or decreasing barriers to access in healthcare, be they physical, architectural, intellectual, or financial. Instead of an impulse to assume healing or maximal remediation is the chief desire among our patients, how might we open ourselves to new narratives? How do our own histories of formation and relationship to religious stories around bodies and healing predispose us to assume the spiritual needs and desires of those with particular human limitations? These are important questions for consideration that arise for us from this common trope of healing. Another commonly assumed narrative with regard to patients with disabilities is their status as sources of inspiration and or as innocent, hyper-spiritualized beings. Palacios addresses this familiar trope in another excerpt from her poem, writing, ableism is when you assume that I'm automatically strong and courageous simply because I'm disabled. Taking up the same disability narrative, the late comedian and disability advocate, Stella Young, coined the term inspiration porn in her 2014 TED talk entitled, I'm not your inspiration, thank you very much. Young's inspiration porn suggests that people with disabilities are inspirational or perhaps more commonly are used instrumentally as objects of inspiration in newspaper stories, YouTube videos, or social media posts, purely on the basis of their disability alone. Young and other disability activists firmly resist this inspirational narration of disability identity, suggesting that it reinforces overtly negative notions of disability and can dehumanize disabled people in communities where most people with disabilities already face significant barriers to obtaining equal respect and access to their very basic needs. The narrative of disabled people as inspiring is intertwined with a connective narrative that centers on the hyper-spiritualization of the lives of people with disabilities. Think, for instance, of common portrayals of children and adults with Down syndrome in the media, as well as in religious and medical communities. They are called those who are holy innocents. They're angels. They are always just so happy. Some of the religious roots of highly spiritualized and inspirational accounts of people with disabilities harken back to debates in the Christian tradition about ritual and sacramental participation. 
Since before the Middle Ages, philosophers of religion and theologians have debated whether or not it is necessary for people with disabilities to participate in the ritual life of the church, to receive the divine benefits of a sanctified life in the here and now, and a life of eternal dwelling with the divine. Throughout the history of many religious groups, it was often too challenging to transport people with physical disabilities to places of religious gathering. In addition, people with cognitive deficits, what we might call intellectual and developmental disabilities today, were often seen as living in a perpetual state of innocence and therefore not in need of religious rituals such as the Christian sacrament of the Eucharist for spiritual sustenance. Interestingly, these same individuals with significant cognitive impairments were thought of and remain thought of in many contemporary communities as unable to participate in sin and therefore in an angelic state of innocence, not in need of accountability, of spiritual sustenance, or of confession for their spiritual well-being. These spiritual characterizations of people with disabilities also permeate medical settings. Spiritualized language, attributing either an implicit assumption or an explicit description of an angelic or inspirational identity to a person or to a family merely based on a diagnosis or apparent disability can often distract from pressing spiritual needs at hand unrelated to strength, innocence, or inspiration. In healthcare contexts, Providers may suggest that God or another divine being has given special strength, skills, and dispositions to families who take care of people with disabilities. Parents of infants or children or adult children with disabilities that we provide care for deserve the opportunity to express to us their own spiritual narration of their lives and the lives of those they care for. Assuming a hyper-spiritualized disposition among disabled patients can negatively impact clinical practice, leading clinicians to interpret patient reports in particular ways, including not taking concerns as seriously from quote, angelic patients who may be desperately trying to communicate with us a spiritual concern that lies in conflict with our assumptions about their status as innocent or inspiring. A third and final common trope about spirituality for people with disabilities in medical contexts is an opposing narrative to the one we just encountered. Instead of a hyper-spiritualization of people with disabilities, this final trope assumes that people with disabilities are aspiritual or non-spiritual. This can be an especially common assumption in response to people with more profound disabilities especially people who are nonverbal or non-speakers. This assumed narrative of decreased or absent spirituality among disabled people parallels a well-documented false assumption among many medical professionals. The, the assumption that disabled people are asexual, less interested in comparison to non-disabled peers in sex, as well as general romantic activities, including dating, marriage, and other forms of intimacy. This narrative of decreased religious identity and even a non-spirituality among disabled people has fairly modern religious roots. Among the Abrahamic religious traditions, especially Christianity, the post-enlightenment focus on cognitive aspects of faith and spiritual practice, 
such as reading, comprehending, and interpreting sacred texts, has placed an increased cognitive requirement for the task of faithful religious life and an outward demonstration of one's spirituality. Though some religious communities make space for practices focused on embodiment and the interdependent life of a faith community, often inclusive of children, disabled people, and older adults with cognitive decline, majority of post-enlightenment emphases in religious practice have prioritized people with full cognitive command of their life of faith, supporting these individuals as faith leaders, while people with notable limitations are often seen as those who require pity, charity, and assistance as their sole role in religious life. Independence, not interdependence, is now one hallmark for many religious people across contemporary Western cultural settings. When disabled people appear in religious and medical contexts with more prominent needs and dependencies, they are assumed to be less capable and in more extreme cases, unable to participate in religious activities or unable to assume a spiritual identity as central to their sense of well-being, meaning, and flourishing. This post-enlightenment prioritization of independence and cognitive aspects of spirituality have important implications for our context of clinical practice. In her poem, Palacios highlights one poignant example. She writes, ableism is when you say that if you became disabled, you would want to die. Ableism is wishing you could help us die or wishing you didn't have to help us live. Ableism is believing disabled people are better off dead. In Palacios's poetic critique of the medical community, she highlights the assumption that in the presence of increased dependencies, spiritual and religious sources for meaning lose their potency. To put it starkly, the presence of disability can suggest that in the face of marked dependency, there exist no factors, including spirituality and religion, that justify the continuance of a radically dependent life. As I have highlighted, this is due in part to shifts in religious practice since the enlightenment that disadvantage and even disqualify some disabled people from participation in religious communities and practices. This powerful assumption that lives marked by radical dependency are inherently questionable can sever or shortcome communication about spiritual meaning in medical encounters between disabled people and their providers. One applicable example from my own research comes to mind when considering this trope of non-spirituality among people with disabilities. A few years ago, I conducted a qualitative study of the experiences of adults with intellectual disabilities and in their religious practices. I specifically investigated how their participation in Christian practices of baptism and related rituals of community initiation and reaffirmation and remembrance of this initiation supported either the belonging of adults with intellectual disabilities or their exclusion from Christian religious communities. One of my research participants who chose the pseudonym James was a young adult with Down syndrome who attended a Baptist church. James told me about his baptism, which had occurred about 15 years before our conversation. 
Reflecting on his baptism, James told me, in my baptism, I rise just like Jesus did. When pastor dunked me in the water, he called me a beloved son, just like Jesus. James's sense of his identity as a beloved one in the sight of God springs from his frequent practice of watching a video of his baptism, a practice he engages in at least every week and sometimes on a daily basis. Now, how does James's story relate to considering disability and spirituality in patient care, other than being a single antidote that suggests one person with an intellectual disability that I know is not non-spiritual? James's pattern of religious practice around his baptismal identity comes into important consideration in the context of his experiences of several extended hospitalizations during his adult life. In a separate interview with James's caregivers, they commented how during James's hospitalizations, it seemed like the medical team ignored James's spiritual needs as well as the importance of his religious practices around viewing the video of his baptism. In comparison to their experiences of more extended hospitalizations with their other two adult children, both of who are non-disabled, James's treatment seemed especially different. During the hospitalizations of their other two non-disabled adult children, James's parents noticed that they were both assessed for spiritual concerns typically during a chaplain visit that was initiated by the pastoral care team at the hospital. In contrast, James did not have the same experience as his siblings. No chaplain came for him. And James's medical team did not attend to his spiritual needs, offering, they did not offer any kind of formal assessment of his spirituality or of potential acute spiritual distress during these extended hospitalizations he experienced as an adult. James's story as an adult with an intellectual disability and his access to medical care is not the only story I've heard where spiritual concerns are sidelined. And in the case of James and others with intellectual disabilities who have a strong sense of spiritual identity and draw comfort, meaning, and peace from their patterns of religious practice, the medical community loses a key supportive intervention for people with disabilities when it assumes that because of cognitive deficit or limitation, disabled people would not benefit from spiritual intervention. As I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, these three common narratives, tropes, and assumptions are strikingly under-investigated. So where might we go from here? In the final section of my talk, I wanna very briefly highlight some additional perspectives from people with disabilities that can help us imagine new narratives and refresh our imaginations about the interface of disability, spirituality, and patient care. Part three, where are we going? Imagining new futures from the perspective of disability. Disability studies scholar and activist, Allison Kafer, in the introduction to her book entitled Feminist Queer Crip writes, quote, how one understands disability in the present determines how one imagines disability in the future, end quote. One's assumptions about the experience of disability create one's conception of a better future, end quote. 
On the next page, Kafer continues, quote, rather than assume that a good future naturally and obviously depends upon the eradication of disability, we must recognize this perspective as colored by histories of ableism and disability oppression, end quote. Kafer pointedly raises a question I've invited us to reflect on throughout today's talk. How do our assumptions about disability impairment and human limitation restrict or enliven our imaginations and practices as we attend to, collaborate with, and care for people with disabilities? Increasing our awareness of common religious tropes and spiritualized assumptions regarding disabled people is a good place to begin. Cultivating this kind of awareness to our own assumptions about disability can create an openness to respect individuals and families experiencing disability who have been harmed by religious and medical communities alike. Becoming aware of and transforming our own assumptions can also help us to resist an automatic assumption of non-spirituality or hyper-spirituality or a pure desire for healing among those living with disabilities. One framework for considering the spiritual needs of people with disabilities and patient care is the notion of disability gain. With its roots in Bauman and Murray's 2014 book entitled Death Gain, the concept of disability gain asks, what happens when we reframe disability and disability identity as sources of gain rather than loss? For example, in the deaf community, gain is found in the richness of deaf culture and the gain of a shared language. The focus is not merely on a loss of a bodily function, in this particular case, that of hearing. Communities that embrace disability gain learn and benefit from how disabled people inhabit, know, and move through the world, including particular expressions of spirituality and religious identity. Disabled lives produce kinds of knowledge and ways of being, including spiritual life, that can benefit all of us, that offer a collective gain to who we are. For non-disabled people, disability gain is not merely a source of what Jung has coined as inspiration porn. It is instead a deep and honoring respect of the new perspectives, spiritualities, and religious identities that arise from disabled ways of being in the world. An honest is upon us as both disabled and non-disabled clinicians to cultivate an awareness of how our assumptions about disabled life might restrict our appreciation and integration of disability gain into our interventions and care of patients with disabilities. What additional resources might help us take up the perspective of disability gain in our efforts to respectively and holistically respond to the spiritual needs of patients? One good place to start might simply be the place where you find yourself working, worshiping, or learning in this very season. For those of us in medical settings, we should consider the presence or absence of disabled people on committees and other work groups. For example, is there someone with a disability on the pastoral care consultation team? Or are disabled people regularly consulted about issues of healthcare decision-making for disabled patients. Is someone with a disability and or expertise about disability on your clinical ethics team 
Are there adults with disabilities, particularly adults with intellectual disabilities, who collaborate with your genetics and pediatric care teams as patient advocates and sources of support or of spiritual and religious specifically support to patients and their families. A final set of resources that might help us reimagine disability toward an end of participating in more supportive and responsible spiritual care of our patients are books, blogs, podcasts, and general articles that take up the very assumptions and questions I have raised for us today. Though these questions are not commonly asked across medical scholarly research, people with disabilities are leading the way. A few specific examples include Alice Wong's Disability Visibility podcast, as well as a newly published collection of essays under the same name. Wong, who hosts the podcast and edited the essay collection, lives with spinal muscular atrophy. With her podcast guests, she commonly engages issues of spirituality and navigating the medical context as a person with a disability in conversation with other disabled people from a diversity of contexts and identities across North America and beyond. Turning to your Twitter feed, if you can stomach it right now, might even be a helpful resource. On Twitter, prominent religious leaders with disabilities such as Rabbi Rudy Reagan, who is autistic and visually impaired, offer frequent comments and even host Twitter chats on issues at the nexus of spirituality, disability, and medicine. Finally, books that consider disability and spirituality in the context of medicine can also be a source of new perspectives. One example is Bethany Fox's recent book on healing that takes up the perspectives of both people with disabilities, as well as a whole chapter devoted to perspectives of physicians. Fox synthesizes, compares, and contrasts these varying approaches to healing as it relates to spirituality and contemporary North American faith communities, as well as medical contexts. So in conclusion, despite the under-researched nature of concerns at the nexus of disability, spirituality, and patient care, I hope that the presentation today has given you some new points of consideration as we continue to serve patients and collaborate with colleagues who embody diverse experiences of human limitation. I especially hope that the invitation to more critically reflect on all of our own assumptions about disability as they relate to spirituality can enliven our imaginations about how we provide patient care rather than provoking within us a spirit of fear about perpetuating ableism. Together, I hope that beginning now and increasing in the future years, we might more carefully consider the influence of popular religious interpretations about the body, disability, and healing to our own dispositions and take the opportunity to do some more new learning around disability, in turn becoming increasingly responsive and skilled clinicians who can support disabled people who are so often disadvantaged and disempowered in contexts of medicine. Thank you so much for your time and attention today, and I welcome your thoughts and questions. Sarah, thank you so much. This was really a terrific talk. Thank you for presenting it. And I guess I just wonder, could you describe how this applies to your work as a pediatric occupational therapist, especially as you see these tropes displayed and, and people bring them in to, you know, to you 
how do you respond and how do you talk about questions of spirituality and religion when you're working in a healthcare setting in occupational therapy? Thanks, Warren. That's a, that's a great question and a great place for us to start. Um, I do this in a couple of ways. One is that I try to notice um, in the medical record, it, it takes a little digging the first time through, but once you know where it's located in your particular EMR, it's pretty easy to find. But I try and find if there is a religious uh, preference identified for the patient that I'm gonna see or their family. And I, I bring that up during the evaluation kind of phase of working with families. Um, especially because spirituality and religious participation in religious practices is central to my scope of practice. Um, spirituality and religion often underlie people's motivations, what's going to kind of get them back to participating how they used to. They have an acquired disability or have kind of come to a roadblock in their life, or it might have been a, a, something that has sustained them in their life as a sense of um, resiliency and has given them that support. So I want to know about that as a clinician because um, I think it's incredibly powerful. Um, and it's it's not a big deal. If it's not a big deal to folks, they just say it's not a big deal to me. So I've kind of uh, broached it that way in clinical practice. I've also used some more standardized assessments um, like the FICA to ask those spiritual kind of questions but I try and find what I can in the medical record, just as I would try and find information about a child's development or other relevant kind of family factors before I meet them for the first time. The other thing that I really like to do, and some of you, I've, I've been at a, visiting a couple of classes and have done a few interviews over these last two weeks, so some of you may have heard this, but the first question that I ask anyone who I see when I'm meeting them for the first time, usually um, children and their families, since I work in pediatrics right now, is what's going well for you? Tell me about your ideal day in your family. Tell me about an ideal, ideal day for your child. And of course, you know, if the child is old enough and has uh, any kind of means of kind of having a meaningful exchange with me, I will ask the child this directly but often I'm working with little babies. And um, so I'll ask their caregiver, what's going really well for you in your life? And often people will point to sources of strength and support that are often related to their religious community or related to their sense of spirituality and way that they are in the world. Um, so that, that question has opened up a lot of um, amazing conversations and really a lot of insight for me as a practitioner that I can use to maximally support this family and collaborate with them as we work together. Um, and I think those kind of questions also frame clinical encounters in a really different way. Obviously in all settings, that's not always the first question you can ask in emergency medicine or in the ICU or something like that. But I think for those of us who have the opportunities to have clinical encounters where we can ask questions like that, it really sets a different tone and it kind of opens up space for our patients to express um, some of these, these practices, some of these identities that they might not otherwise share with us if we come from a more kind of deficit oriented approach. So those are a couple examples from my own practice. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.